conversations on healthcare. I'm Martin Sally. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, another year has flown by, and to say it was tumultuous would be an understatement. <laughs> yep, that is what I call pretty safe to say. And certainly, at least in terms of healthcare, we're ending this year with more uncertainty and unanswered questions as we wait to see what the incoming administration is going to do around the Affordable Care Act. Well, it's pretty sure to say that there will be some form of repeal and replace. Our most recent guest, uh, the Honorable Michael Levitt, one of the many advisors to the Trump transition team, feels that the administration really has no choice but to deliver some form of what was promised on the campaign trail. And if it's repealed, much of the progress that's been made in ensuring more than 20 million Americans may be lost. Certainly continuing to look at opioid overdose deaths as a huge problem across the country. Something that our guest thinks a lot about. Dr. Adam Ghazali is a neuroscientist and founder of the Neuroscience Imaging Center in the Ghazali Lab at UC San Francisco. He has been doing some really fascinating and groundbreaking work developing 3D brain imaging technology that allows researchers to observe brain function in real time. Some very exciting and clinical advances being studied, and we're really looking forward to that. He's also developing virtual reality systems already proving highly effective in helping treat such conditions as brain aging, ADD, PTSD, depression, and even addiction. What's so exciting about this is that it offers a non-pharmaceutical approach to treating a number of brain disorders. Really looking forward to that conversation, Margaret. And Lori Robertson will stop by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or at CHC Radio on Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Adam Ghazali in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 2016 was a bad year for the resurgence of the mumps, with more than 4,000 cases reported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's nearly triple the number of cases reported in 2015 and the highest spike of cases in 10 years. College campuses seem to be a hotbed of infection. Nearly 200 cases reported at the University of Missouri, more than 300 cases at the University of Illinois Urbana. Most of these students who contracted the mumps had been vaccinated, leading to discussion of whether there needs to be a new approach to the vaccine booster protocols. Two doses of the vaccine is the standard protocol for immunization, but experts at the CDC are looking at the efficacy of recommending a third booster shot in areas where outbreaks are underway. Ebola took a devastating toll on West Africa, the outbreak starting back in 2014 and spreading into 2015, leaving more than 11,000 people dead, sickening tens of thousands. The World Health Organization was slow to respond to the outbreak. And there's good news from the lab. In a report released in the publication The Lancet, an experimental vaccine has proven to be 100% effective in blocking the virus. The new vaccine has some flaws, experts say. It appears to work only against one of the two most common strains of Ebola and may not give long-lasting protection. While it hasn't been approved yet for distribution, lab tests were so successful, 300,000 doses have been produced and preserved should another outbreak occur. 
which Dr. Anthony Fochi of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases predicts will happen. He says more research is needed, but this is good news. Bird flu is also on the rise across parts of Asia and even Europe. Hong Kong reported his first death from bird flu, an elderly man who'd contracted the H7N9 virus while in China. Two Chinese people also succumbed. Officials across several Asian countries are culling poultry populations by the tens of thousands. Officials in Germany, where bird flu was also detected, are doing the same. The H5N8 strain, known to be highly contagious. And in India, a strain H5N1 has shown up as well. And pregnancy and women's brains. A study has shown a link between women's pregnancy and growth in the part of the brain wired for responding to social and emotional cues. A recent study showed many of these changes appear to last at least two years after giving birth. Mothers who had the most pronounced alterations in their brains also scored higher on tests of emotional attachment to their babies than women whose brains underwent more subtle changes. And being a single dad seems to have an impact on brain health as well. According to a Canadian study, single dads are twice as likely to report poor physical and mental health as fathers with partners do. Single-parent households are a growing trend. 27% of U.S. families, 25% of families in the U.K., and 16% of families in Canada. So these findings point to what could be a large unmet need in adult behavioral health across these regions. study found that single mothers generally had more stresses due to financial challenges, whereas men experience more stress as lone caregivers. Researchers suggest men are less likely to ask for help when they are in trouble and urge better screening of single dads in the primary care setting. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Adam Ghazali, founding director of the Neuroscience Imaging Center, Neuroscape Lab and Ghazali Lab at UC San Francisco, where he's also an associate professor of neurology, physiology, and psychiatry. Dr. Ghazali is also co-founder of Akili Interactive Labs, a digital medicine company. He's authored over 100 scientific papers and delivered over 500 presentations around the world, including the PBS special and accompanying book, the distracted mind. He has won numerous awards and distinctions, including the Pfizer Afar Innovations in Aging Award and the Ellison Foundation New Scholar Award in Aging. He earned his MD and his PhD in neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and completed his internship in internal medicine and his clinical residency in neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Zali, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Pleasure yeah, to be here. Yeah, you're among a handful of notable cognitive neuroscientists who are helping to forge a path into a new frontier of brain scientists. You know, I think over the last probably 15 months, we've had a, a number of interesting figures in the brain world. We had Dr. William Newson, who was at uh, uh, co-directing the Brain Initiative, where they're mapping out the brain. And we had uh, Representative Patrick Kennedy, who's working on the One Mind Initiative and looking at new ways to accelerate development of research and cures. And your lab has been developing technological and gaming interventions for the development of a healthy brains and also treatment of a number of common and debilitating brain disorders. I wonder if you could share with our listeners uh, some of these new technologies that you're developing and the potential to usher in a new era of brain health. Sure. Well, um, as a neurologist, I've 
felt frustrated with our current tools that we use to treat conditions of the mind. And I'm speaking very broadly there from attention problems to mood like depression, anxiety, but certainly in the field that I focus on, which is aging-related impairment in cognition, so things associated with Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative processes. Medications uh, that we use, which are really small molecules, are not well-targeted, and they're not well-personalized to the individual. And so we either wind up with only modest effects, not what we're really hoping for, or lots of side effects um, as well on top of that. And so the uh, idea that I had pushed into practice almost eight years ago now was to use experiences to help rewire neural circuits and strengthen uh, different neural processes. And the experiences that we've really latched onto as being very powerful and interactive and could be very targeted, uh, we deliver in the form of video games. So in our, in our center here at Neuroscape at, at UCSF, starting from scratch, usually working with professionals in the video game industry, um, very uh, interactive challenges that push one of our participants to engage in an activity you know, for long periods of time and then record carefully how that type of interactivity improves their brain function. Well, Dr. Ghazali, that is totally fascinating as a society to grapple with. And if I can, being in the throes of the opioid crisis, certainly managing addiction, managing chronic pain, which has so often led to addiction, treating conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, these are just huge issues that we have terrible outcomes for too many patients. You've spoken of your grand vision of the future of brain health, where we'll have this far more personalized, as you say, and specifically targeted approach. Can you talk about how technological interventions that you're exploring might make a dent on some of these just seemingly almost intractable problems? Well, because these experiences can be constructed in a very precise way to challenge an individual just on those abilities that most need to be optimized, we can direct our medicine, our digital medicine, as we like to think about it, much more precisely. In terms of personalization, we use this closed-loop system, this ability of a game or any type of interactivity, especially in the digital world, to adjust its challenge, to scale that challenge that it's demanding of the player in a way that's appropriate to their abilities. And when uh, someone you know, gets better over time, because our brains are plastic, so that's the natural process, the game detects that in real time and gradually pushes these processes into a more optimal state. Uh, so you can almost think of it as like a personal trainer every second, mm-hmm. just being there pushing the system. Mm-hmm. And so we're, you know, we're already seeing impact across a wide range of conditions, things that seem almost counterintuitive for a video game to be therapeutic on such as addiction mm-hmm. and attention disorders, which many people blame on this media, right. uh, we think it can have a positive impact. Now it's just doing the hard work and, and proving that. So it is counterintuitive. Video games doing good work as somebody who has two adolescent boys, you know, common in our household, League of Legends or their friends uh, talking about Grand Theft Auto. But you actually see the same vehicle, but you see it in a different way. And you talk about this in terms of using a series of monitors and sensors that help to create what's called a closed-loop system. You're seeing some real progress on treating ADHD or PTSD and beyond that realm. So tell us about how all of this works. Sure. So it's important to pause on the video game question that you raised because video games are 
this interesting beast where they have been, you know, many ways thought of as the enemy, and it's not without complication. But that's true of everything. You know, there's always yin and yang, and video games are certainly, you know, very clearly in that category of having both the potential to do good and the potential to be disruptive. Another important point is that video games, you know, they're a genre. They include many, many different types of interactivity and challenges. How we, uh, you know, think about it is that if you create this type of interactivity in the closed loop, and by that, you know, we mean that while you're playing, your accuracy, how fast you are, we even feed other physiological information, for example, your heart rate, into some of our games, that they can be used to create this very personalized challenge such that it's not too difficult where you just give up and you're frustrated or too easy where it's boring. And so you just put your, your player right in that sweet spot, in that flow state, where they are most susceptible to change. Our first big study was on a game that we created called NeuroRacer, um, and we studied healthy older adults. And what we were able to show that not only were they able to improve their ability to multitask on the game, but that other skills that were related through common brain networks but we're not directly trained by the game itself. This is something we call transfer. So their ability to do a face memory task over a short period of time or a very boring sustained attention task, that they also improve significantly. So this is the very methodical, rigorous approach that's necessary to take this concept that um, an interactive game can improve your cognitive abilities. Now we're stepping into clinical domains, looking at populations such as ADHD, post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, anxiety disorder, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease. All of those studies have started mostly by our colleagues, Mm -hmm. which then, um, you know, express interest in our games and think that it might have benefit in their populations, and we help guide them. And data is already now being yielded uh, that we're really, really excited about. So you'll hopefully be seeing many publications in 2017 across those conditions showing that we can make a positive and a, a meaningful and, mm. and what we will show is a sustainable impact mm. in improving uh, the lives of those individuals. Well, during the recent holiday shopping season, it was just about impossible to avoid virtual reality products. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've said that the combination of virtual reality and artificial intelligence, along with advanced methods of scanning brain function in real time, hold just incredible promise in this world of brain health, and you've conducted so much research on how these technologies work together. What excites you about the potential for these interfaces? This is the year of virtual reality. We've seen from the big platforms like the Oculus Rift and and the Vive, uh, the PlayStation VR, even Sony has one, and then all really exploding into the consumer space this year. We'll see more of that next year, and then we'll start seeing augmented reality devices uh, that are going to be quite powerful where you overlay the digital world on top of the real world as opposed to totally displacing yourself as you do with virtual reality. We're very excited about these. I mean, right now they're all really largely being targeted for entertainment purposes, for video games, but we see great potential for these to be powerful tools to help improve the human condition in many different ways. We think there'll be focuses on education, but also on medicine and mental health. We already have seen virtual reality advances for pain relief and for anxiety disorders. In our own group here at UCSF, we are now taking our video game platforms that we've developed to focus on uh, meditation-type practices, physical fitness, rhythm. Uh, Now we're looking at how they might have an even greater impact 
if they are placed inside virtual reality domains. And the reason for that is that it is just a much more real-world, immersive setting to be in. And we think that it will create more powerful experiences and thus have a more powerful influence on improving brain function. We're speaking today with Dr. Adam Ghazali, founding director of Neuroscience Imaging Center at the University of California, San Francisco, and principal investigator of a cognitive neuroscience laboratory at UCSF, where he is also an associate professor in neurology, physiology, and psychiatry. Dr. Ghazali also co-founded Akili Interactive Labs, a digital medicine company. He's co-authored over 100 scientific papers and has delivered over 500 presentations around the world on his research including the PBS special and accompanying book, The Distracted Mind. I'm wondering about the group that you partner with. Uh, are, are there uh, folks in the industry who are making video games uh, engaged in your work? I think scientists often assume that because they're smart and, and they're deeply involved in understanding the brain, they'd be able to create video games on their own. Um, we're not in that camp. We really respect the video game professionals. Um, artists, musicians, storytellers, the programmers, the designers of the user interfaces. And we realize that there's great expertise and we want to help leverage that, you know, to accomplish this higher order goal of building these games as, as valuable tools. And so we always work with professionals and teach them, you know, our understanding of the brain and closed loop algorithms and then work with them on creating these environments and the reward structures that are necessary for someone to uh, engage deeply and for a long period of time. Achille Interactive, which is the company that I co-founded based on our researcher at UCSF, um, is you know pretty much a 50-50 a team of video game professionals and others from science and business and healthcare. Some of the highest level people from the game industry that might be more senior in their career feeling, you know, as my colleague uh, from LucasArts once told me, he spent his entire career teaching teenagers how to kill aliens, <laughs> and now he's ready to advance to something else. And so we often find, like, the best people in the industry that have been doing it the longest, that have already made their names, and they're on the other side, and now they have kids, and then they're like, I want to take these skills and really reapply them. So then um, it, it, it creates a new type of dynamic when you spend enough time uh, with video game professionals and scientists and people from medicine um, that creates products that people have never seen before. So we're, we're really excited about that particular element of this whole journey. Well, Dr. Ghazali, you recently hosted a riveting presentation where you had a Wall Street Journal reporter on stage with you, uh, fitted with one of your lab's head caps. And what was so remarkable about it is that one was able to watch a large 3D image of his brain on the screen as the neurons were firing away in real time while he interacted with a video game. Maybe for our listeners, how are these advanced imaging technologies enhancing our understanding of how the brain actually works? Sure. So you're talking about a technology that we created with many other partners called the Glass Brain. If people look it up, they'll be able to see it. And the uh, the goal is to create a real-time visualization that is able to detect different brain rhythms and how brain areas are communicating with, with each other essentially in real time. So the Glass Brain is a combination of an MRI and a mobile EEG that operate upon that data very rapidly to create that visualization. And now we're 
um, proceeding along two pathways with this technology. The first is to see, is there any value in real-time brain information in, in this format as a diagnostic tool? So we also have a virtual reality version of this, which is quite remarkable to put it on and fly inside your own brain while it is watching your brain. If you are a physician or a therapist, let's say, flying inside someone else's brain, watching it evolve in real time, and let's say you have a dashboard and you can increase the challenges in a game that they're playing and then look at how their brain responds, would that be useful diagnostic information? But where we're spending most of our time is on the therapeutic aspects of this. So I already described the closed loop. Um, your performance is driving the reward system and the challenge that you're getting. We have another game where your heart rate drives it. So that's a physical fitness game where we want to maintain you at this perfectly challenging heart rate for you. With the glass brain, what we can do is take neural information, actual brain data, in real time while you're playing the game, feed that into the game engine, and now the game is challenging you and giving you rewards, not just based on your performance, but based on what your brain is doing. And we think this is going to be a much more targeted way, almost like a surgical way of, of optimizing brain function. This is the direction that we're going in. Basically, consumer-friendly technology like mobile EG caps and video games and VR and artificial intelligence and wearable physiological devices all coming together to create this closed loop to improve uh, your function. But in addition, you're a healthcare provider, you're a researcher, and you're doing the bench science right now, and you're trying to get it to the bedside. You've gained uh, FDA approval for several of your therapeutic games, which we think may be one of the first for the FDA. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the approval process. What do you expect we'll see as an acceleration of such approvals may result out of the 21st Century Cures Act? And how do you see the medical community actually then embracing these technologies? Are you going to jump over them and go right to the consumer? So just to be clear, the stage that we're at with Achilles, which has been the most aggressive in terms of taking video games to that true clinical level, um, which requires regulatory approval, we've pre-submitted to the FDA who's, who have approved not the game for clinical use yet, but a full multi-site clinical trial, which is, as far as we know, the first time that we've seen this type of trial being conducted. Our clinical indication for the first trial that's underway now and has been underway for most of this year is as a therapeutic device to treat um, attention uh, disorders in children with ADHD. Uh, so that trial is underway. If we hit the milestones that we set in our pre-submission to the FDA, then we could be looking at the first non-drug treatment for ADHD. And as far as we know, the first non um, pharmaceutical, uh, the first video game as a prescribable. Um, obviously, there's so many more challenges. I mean, that, <clears throat> that's a big one, and we will see the results of that study in 2017, as well as start many other clinical trials uh, in different populations in the beginning of 2017. So they're just being prepared now for pre-submission. Uh, but there's other things that have to change. It has to be essentially like almost like a paradigm shift in terms of physicians thinking about medicine not just as pills but as you know interactive video games there has to be a shift in how payers and other uh, reimbursers uh, will help uh, support the this field as as you know prescribable therapies but my hope is that you know by the end of 2017 we'll see 
uh, psychiatrist, neurologists reach into their pockets, pull out a prescription pad, and not just write down a drug, but write down like you know two months of iPad, and and uh, a whole new type of medicine will be born. That's that's what I hope. We've been speaking today with Dr. Adam Ghazali, founding director of the Neuroscience Imaging Center, Neuroscape Lab, and the Ghazali Lab at UC San Francisco. Dr. Ghazali is also the co-founder of Akili Interactive Labs, a digital medicine company aimed at creating clinically validated digital medicine. You can learn more about his groundbreaking work by going to ghazalilab.ucsf.edu or follow him on Twitter at Adam Gaz at A-D-A-M-G-A-Z-Z. Dr. Ghazali, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We looked back at the most noteworthy false claims about science in 2016 and several concerned health issues. For instance, during a congressional battle over funding to combat the Zika epidemic, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid falsely claimed that Zika, quote, affects everyone because recent research found that it, quote, causes people to go blind. Temporary vision impairment is a symptom of Zika, a virus primarily spread by mosquito bite, but no adult has gone blind because of the virus. North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp warned about traveling in the U.S., claiming that the Zika virus will be transmitted, quote, everywhere in the United States. At the time, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention projected local clusters of Zika transmission on U.S. soil via mosquito bite, but not a widespread epidemic. As of December 7th, the CDC's projections have held true. Puerto Rico primarily, but also the U.S. Virgin Islands, Florida, American Samoa, and Texas have seen locally acquired cases. Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton said that you can't do any research about marijuana because it's a Schedule I drug. That's false. Schedule I classification makes it difficult to conduct research on a substance, but not impossible. Senator Jim Inhofe falsely claimed in November that a new report confirms that fracking has not impacted drinking water in Wyoming. The industry-funded report couldn't reach firm conclusions due to a lack of water quality data before oil and gas exploration. Louisiana Representative Ralph Abraham claimed in June that thousands of studies refute the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's conclusion that ground-level ozone exacerbates asthma attacks. That's false, too. A link between ground-level ozone and asthma exacerbation is well-documented in the scientific literature, which both the American Lung Association and the World Health Organization acknowledge. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, 
Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When longtime IBM executive Sharon Linder left the corporate world, she thought she would ease into semi-retirement. But then breast cancer diagnoses for her mother and two sisters shifted her focus. She watched as all three of them went through multiple surgeries and treatments, wearing the ubiquitous Johnny, the hospital gowns that tie in the back and leave patients often feeling vulnerable and exposed during a time when they are also scared and uncomfortable during their treatments. The hospital gown was never meant to close in the back. It was meant to make it easy for you to go to the john. And so when you put it in the front, it really doesn't close. You know, I think that the traditional hospital gown takes away your identity and comfort. Two things that are really important when you're advocating for yourself. The former corporate executive decided that the one in eight women going through breast cancer treatment needed a power suit of their own to navigate this challenging experience, and she launched her own research project into which fabrics and which designs might provide a better alternative to the standard hospital gown, but one that would also be an easy addition to hospital laundering services. We came up with a fabric that, you know, he would throw in the washer and dryer for like two weeks nonstop, and it came out beautifully. So the fabric we came up with is a a waffle weave fabric, but it's a knit. So the feel of it is very much like a cotton cashmere that is just so soft, you just don't want to take it off. She called her invention Jane's, as opposed to Johnny's, creating a gown that thousands of users have called comfortable, stylish, and a vast improvement from their predecessors. And they fit people in a comforting way. It's, it, you know, you're totally covered. It's a little V-neck crossover at the very top, and it goes all around your body. And she developed the gown in time for her own cancer diagnosis and was able to see her invention put to her own good use. Jane's did give me really a leg up. I think that I felt better about all of my treatments. Just feeling like I looked better. When you think you look better, you feel better. Dozens of hospital systems across the country are adopting her gown design, which you can also order online for women who've received a recent diagnosis of breast cancer. And even nursing mothers are using her product. Jane's, a hospital gown designed for enhancing the female patient experience, providing comfort, dignity, easier access during challenging procedures, or just providing an easier experience for newly breastfeeding mothers, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.